Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? On this Thursday, we're going down to Austin, Texas with Eric Silverstein from the Peach Tortilla. Eric, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, man. All right. So you're on because we had a great episode with our now buddy, your buddy, my new friend, Patrick Scott Armstrong from the Lone Star Plate podcast. That dude's awesome. And he's killing it right now. His guest lineup has been sick. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but I've been watching it's been great. I actually pinged him about that the other day. I was like, damn, you got some high profile guests coming on. He's on fire right now for yeah. sure. And it's also funny because it's so focused on the state of Texas, obviously. And you go, wait a minute. I didn't know that person was from Texas. I find myself doing that a lot because it's really like they may be in a different field. They may be in a different state or known for being in New York and California because their brand or their company. Yet it's kind of like bringing it back to the roots. So I'm really, really into that. So I'm grateful the opportunity to speak with you give people real quick kind of the definition of the peach tortilla austin texas what can people expect from from your brand down there i mean quick and dirty is we are a brand that originated out of a food truck serving um asian uh fusion tacos burritos bowls um started really small and then grew this concept into uh multiple full service restaurants a fast casual uh restaurant in, uh, inside the airport and then um, a, a very large catering company that is attached to a venue space. And all the food we serve is uh, largely, it, it's you know Asian and, and Southern inspired, but largely Asian inspired uh, based on my upbringing in, in Japan and uh, you know growing up in a multicultural household and whatnot. So that's the inspiration for everything. I love it. And you basically are touching so many different, from catering to in the airport, which that's, those numbers are astronomical from what I've seen yeah. uh, to bar, to the food now, truck, to the right restaurant. Not right now. Yeah, not right now. Zero right now. Not right now, for sure. So, and uh, and you mentioned the cultural background. So it looks like we're both Hapa, your family. Yes. Give us, give us a little of that background. My grandmother, my Obachan is from Kyoto, Japan. So I very okay. much understand the dynamic. I'm interested sure. for you, you know, give us specifically parents, grandparents, kind of where's the background from? And then, let, take us back. How did that kind of inform your, you know, personal history? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so I was born in Japan. I'm not Japanese. Um, I was born in Tokyo. Uh, my father is um, Jewish and from New York, from Mount Vernon, New York. He grew up in the city. He grew up in Manhattan, um, but he was born in Mount Vernon. Uh, my mother is from Hong Kong. She's Chinese. And uh, they made they met stateside, and I was born in uh, Tokyo because my dad had a job with um, Lucky Strike, believe it or not, the cigarette company. And um, he then moved into food, uh, and was with PepsiCo, uh, working for Kentucky Fried Chicken, and right. uh, moved within the PepsiCo family to Pizza Hut. And at the age of eleven, I moved to Atlanta because that's where the headquarters for Pizza Hut South, uh, Southeast was based out of. 
So I spent 11 years in, uh, in Tokyo. I went to international school, just extremely multicultural background. All my friends were, you know, hapas, biracial, uh, from different places all around the world, New Zealand, Australia, Tokyo, Sri Lanka, you know, so it, it was a very different upbringing, probably not your average um, childhood. I'm, I'm very, we're going to get into this more because I have an inkling now, kind of the way that you navigate cultural, culture and then food kind of within that context. So I'm fascinated in that for sure. So, so it was always kind of in you, you always were seeing the hospitality industry, seeing food and beverage, kind of understanding it yet for you. And this doesn't surprise me either. Kind of that multicultural background, people kind of wanting, you know, the kid to be the doctor or the lawyer. And so you yeah. did, you yeah. went down the law path. So talk about that. Did it, was it, did it feel forced upon you? And that's why you ended up making the transition. Was it what you wanted? But once you got in it, you realized it wasn't for you. Kind of give us a little bit of that dynamic. So the background actually is I, my original dream was to actually be a sports agent. So I, when I was like 14 or 13, I went to the movies and I saw this movie, Jerry Maguire, which is now like so outdated. And I was like, <laughs> wow, I want to be a sports agent. You know, I'm, I'm a sports nut. I love, I love sports. I love professional sports. I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm in withdrawal right now. And, um, so I, I was, I had worked for a bunch of sports agents, um, or, you know, interned. I worked with the Las Vegas uh, based sports agent who who um, was Riddick Bowe's manager at one time. Um, so I got all this experience, went to law school. I hooked up with a, a few uh, smaller uh, NFL agents and started, you know, working at a law firm and trying to do that stuff on the side. Um, but quickly, it really became about being a lawyer. And um, I, I, I just really didn't have that much interest in being a lawyer. Um, and it just wasn't where my passion was. My passion has always been food and being an entrepreneur. And um, I'm not going to lie. I did have the very prototypical tiger mom. Um, I talk about this in my book. You know, my mother was a very uh, traditional Chinese mother uh, where right. you put academics over everything else and you come home and you do your homework and, and, you know, you get rewarded once you get good grades and you get, you do your homework. And, um, you know, she forced me to play the violin for like five years of my life, forced me to practice an hour a day. We would fight about it. Um, that's the type of uh, upbringing I had. I mean, I'm grateful for it. It instilled a lot of discipline in me, but definitely had a heavy Asian cultural uh, influence in, in my house, not to mention growing up in Japan where the Japanese culture is insanely disciplined. Uh, you have salary men, you have company men, they work long hours, they're dedicated. Um, I adopted a lot of Japanese culture. Like I, I feel like even though I'm not Japanese blood, I inherited a lot of that culture too. Makes a lot of sense. All right. This we're getting very thematic now. There's a thread of kind of your background, the entrepreneurial hustle, that DNA of just discipline and focus, attention to detail clearly is coming out. So from all of that, the international background, the entrepreneurial spirit, the tiger mom, all of it. Yeah. Now your brand, the peach tortilla, Austin, Texas, and starting a food truck, that seems very counter to all that. I'm sure there's some yeah. detail within that that makes tons of sense once we kind of unpack it. But at its face, it very much seems like now you're being 
I don't know, the rebellious kid? What was that for you, kind of getting into the hospitality industry? And did it really start in Texas? Or give us the the kind of the moment where you said, I'm in hospitality, this is it. No, it didn't start in Texas. It actually started in Missouri. Uh, I was in St. Louis, Missouri, okay. and I, I'd been there for 10 years. And I was I went to undergrad. I got a law degree at Washington University in St. Louis, and I practiced law for three years. And you know, I was just ready for a change. I was ready to leave the Midwest. Um, I felt like it was getting a little bit stale for me. Um, I mean, I always got love for, for, for St. Louis and Missouri, but it was just time for me to go somewhere else. And really, um, uh, I wanted to start a food business and we were trying to raise money for a restaurant actually. And, um, to open in St. Louis or you knew no, it was going to no. be somewhere else. Well, I, so I gave my girlfriend three options at the time. I said, we can go to Seattle, we can go to Denver, or we can go to Austin, but I need to, I need to get out of here and the winters are killing me. And, um, she picked Austin. So we, we put a, a little, I put a business plan together, tried to raise money for a restaurant, but then everyone was like, Hey, um, there's no good reason for me to give you money. You know, nothing about the restaurant business. And so we, we pivoted to a food truck. And um, it was either go in a food truck or do nothing. And the one guy that really inspired me was obviously Roy Choi, um, Kogi. Kogi was killing it in 2009. He was. I mean, Kogi in LA changed the whole game. I oh. mean, when you could have James Beard level food and wine, best new chef out of, you know, the LA Roach coach, like killing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and you know, he was a very counterculture guy. You know, he was like, uh, you know, very, very uh, classically trained chef, but then he was, you know, F it, I'm going to go start a food truck. Um, I'm not sure uh, I'm necessarily as rebellious. I just felt like it was either start a food truck or don't have anything. Makes sense. And so you start the food truck, obviously lower barrier of entry when it comes to cost. And also Austin is the perfect place for that, actually. Yeah. Because restaurant either way it's funny you mentioned those cities i throw portland maybe Asheville, a couple other cities where like i feel like all having traveled to all those places kind of the same type of people especially in food and beverage matriculate into those markets it's just like what weather do you want do you want snow rain right. or 100 right. degrees for 100 straight days right is yeah. the big difference yet food truck culture is massive there portland and austin for sure on the food truck culture massive right so i think of my favorite barbecue place in austin texas for cities truck you kind of yeah you're compelled to start a food concept you don't have the restaurant background in kind of your personal experience but you had it growing up understanding and seeing the ins and outs of restaurants seeing it within atlanta pepsico and all that so how do you start to apply talk about that first year the challenges all of them i'm yeah. sure there's all of the challenges the and then kind of what did you see as the opportunity sure well, I mean, the opportunity was building a brand, right? It was a, it was a, uh, a low, it was a stepping stone to being able to build something bigger, but okay. there's no, I, I joke about this. There's no, there's no manual to tell you how to run a food truck. And at the time in 2009, there weren't that many people who had run food trucks. So yeah. it's not like you're, you're, it's not like you can call a bunch of people and say, Hey man, like what's your experience been uh, running a food truck? And it's not like I had Roy Choi on speed dial. So it was more like, okay, uh, let's figure it out. Let's 
So we rented a food truck. We leased one from a lonchera facility, a mainly Hispanic commissary facility. And so initially I was learning how to operate a food truck from uh, the guys that ran the loncheras. So I remember the first day uh, I, I showed up at like 4.30 in the morning and I worked a shift with uh, the Hispanic crew that went to construction sites. And I was I like, okay, well, let me see how this works, you know, and they're doing a completely different menu. But I mean, that, that I learned so much, you know, the, the hustle involved. I mean, it was a long day. Uh, you know, they're breaking down the truck and, and like mopping floors on the highway down I-35 as they're approaching the facility, you know, for efficiency. It's hot as hell in the truck. It's nonstop. The, the food truck game is the, the hardest thing you can do in the food business. And I'm talking about a mobile food truck. I'm not talking about a stationary food truck. I'm right. not talking about a stationary trailer. Those are vastly different concepts, right. but a mobile food truck that moves around one, two, three locations a day. So, uh, you know, these guys were going nine or 10 locations a day. So that was my initial introduction. And early on, I realized, man, this could be a lot harder than I thought it was. Um, this is physical. These are long hours. And I'm not gonna lie, that first year, it broke me. It broke me as a, a human being. It broke me emotionally. It broke me mentally. The money wasn't there. I mean, I wanted to give up. Um, because uh, it, it's just so hard. You can't, I mean, there's the money is just, the, the margins are just razor, razor thin. So for you, I think your experience that you're talking about right now is so many people's experience that myself been broken multiple times and decided I wanna be on this side of the equation and talk to you about your experience because restaurants are insanely difficult and so hard to sustain. To create yeah. like equitable, profitable and sustainable models in restaurants, is unbelievably challenging so i appreciate that now you have kind of your budding brand and yeah. multiple units going down there so respect on that front when you're talking about being broken so many people have and they continue just to like run at that wall again and again and again there's so much strength in the perseverance within hospitality we see that playing out right now in covid people are completely oh, decimated yet their next instinct is where can i go be of service where can i go feed people where can i like find my tribe once again. So I think we're going to get into that a little bit more as we talk about some of the operations today. So the food truck, you find a way, you just find a way. That's the way that it always goes. And then what happens next? What is that, that pivotal moment, that seminal moment for you? We say, you know what, we're about to level this up and we're, we're going for it. We're going to expand. What was the next expansion and kind of why, what was the catalyst for that? Well, it, it was a lot of, it was, we, I, I've always said that we always take a lot of baby steps. And so, you know, I mentioned that we leased the first food truck. So the first step was, okay, we're going to go invest $65,000, $70,000, and we're going to custom build our first truck. So that was step one. Step two, okay, we're going to custom build the second truck. So we can go to two locations at once. And, you know, we don't, we're not, our hands aren't tied if we book out the, the truck for one event. So we custom built the second truck. And then we started focusing on catering uh, events and utilizing the trucks to cater events, doing drop-off catering. So then we invested in the catering van. Uh, and then after that, about three years into the game, we signed a lease to build a restaurant. And that whole process took a whole year. And then we opened the restaurant up uh, December of 14. So the restaurant's about five and a half years old now. So uh, that move, 
What, why yeah. the transition from two food trucks and then the catering van to the restaurant? I'm just fascinated because you see people doing that, making that transition. And sometimes I don't think they understand what that means. Well, the, the challenges yeah. and opportunities, again, within that. So why did you go about that? And then let's connect the dots for people that you see it a lot or you see the incubators a lot. I love the incubator concept where it's like started at a low risk. You're just focused on the food for a six month, nine month, one year lease and then do your brick and mortar. Food trucks kind of were some of that where it's like this is a testing ground. And then when you're ready, you kind of graduate up. You sure. know, what's the thinking? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's graduating down. Why the, the restaurant and for people thinking about it, give us a couple of the high ticket items on what to pay attention to when you make that transition. Well, the restaurant was built. So, okay, let, let's back up. So I had, I had the food truck business, but what I really had was a catering business before I got into the restaurant. Now it wasn't the most robust catering business, but it was, you know, between the, the food trucks and the trucks, we we're probably doing like a, we we're over a million dollars, you know? Okay. Um, and so we, you know, we had some cash flow, and we we're like, okay, we, you know, we can, we should, let's go into the next phase. We need our own kitchen. We're tired of using a commissary kitchen, sharing it with 15 other people that have 15 different cleaning practices and 15 different labeling practices. And it's a mess. So, you know, we're like, we need our own kitchen. And for me personally, we built that, I built that restaurant straight out of my own ego. I was like, man, four year journey. Like I gotta, I gotta build a restaurant because that's what I, that's what I moved here to do. That's why I changed careers. And um, I know that the margins are rough in, in the restaurant business. And I know that it's going to take a lot of money to build because we built the restaurant from ground, you know, pretty much from ground up. But uh, it was the end of one journey, which is the food truck journey and the beginning of another journey, which is actually owning your own kitchen and owning your own building. So uh, I don't own the real estate, but I'm, you know, I, I'm not subleasing from someone else. So, uh, high ticket items, I mean, construction, 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 I mean, yes. construction was, was high. And then, um, uh, equipment, our equipment bill was like $140,000 for that restaurant. It was a lot of equipment. Um, so, uh, when you're you a, maybe Eric, do you have maybe an insight? You talked about construction build out is massive. And I think we over yeah. always underestimate and maybe we spend a little too much time thinking about the light fixtures. Then we think about the light or the sound of the ambiance. Like we think about the aesthetic versus the function sometimes. Anyway, I'm, I'm interested, like when you're thinking about a build out of a space, is there any insights that you might give? Is there any, like now, you know exactly how much to budget per square foot of a build out, anything like that. Any kind yeah. of insider tip you could give people that are watching? Well, rule of thumb is two fifty per square foot, about right. um, all in. Do you uh, like that number? I think it's fair. Um, yeah. I think post COVID it might go down. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, big tips: Do you use? Do you buy used equipment or new equipment? I am now fully on the buy new equipment uh, side of things i think used equipment. never buy refrigeration of any kind use is the number one rule i tell people other yeah. equipment uh you know like we can negotiate on the possibility but you're all on new everything new i'm like 80 percent new yeah. yeah i mean if you want to buy like a used like flat top or charbroil sure go for it um 
And then uh, you just don't know how well it was maintained by the prior owner. You're, you're just taking, a, there's a lot of guesswork involved in this. And then the biggest thing for me is, is sound and sound control. And, and sound is, it was such a big topic before COVID. I mean, now, you know, you probably go into a dining room and it's super quiet because there ain't anybody in there. But yeah. um, uh, pre-COVID, sound was a big issue. Number one complaint on open table for most restaurants. It's too, too loud, can't hear anyone. Why isn't this place investing in sound control? So you really got to look at what you're putting on your ceilings. And whether your ceilings are insulated or if you have soundproof padding, but you need something for sound. Sound is the number one complaint. I, there's... Eric, I'm so with you 100%. It's such a conversation that I've had developing concepts over the years. Yeah. Is like, I, I joked about the light fixture. Temperature, sound, and light. Those are functionality of ambiance, yet we get caught up in the light fixture, not the lighting. So it's like zones for temperature, zones for sound, zones for lighting, everything on a dimmer, everything with multiple control systems. You know, like, I think it is so, so important. So I am 100% with you. People, temperature, light, sound. And for you, sound is number one. So I'm I'm a buyer of what you're selling right now, 100%. So yep, I like it. 250 a square foot, another good number for people to look at. I think a lot of times we, honestly, I would tell people, have enough money in the bank for 250, budget the 200, and you'll end up at 260. Like, that's just... That's just the way it ends up. It always takes longer, costs more money, and is much more difficult. So yep. I'm a I'm a big fan of that. $250 per square foot for build out is a good place to start the conversation. And to your point, I think it's going to be lower. Now you have the multi-unit concept now, right? The peach tortilla, bar peach, like you've kind of expanded that. We have four, um, we have four locations. Four locations. So for you, I'm interested in this too. Why was it expanding on that individual brand versus going more of the restaurant group style and being like, I'm going to have four completely different brands. Why for you was it important to kind of expand on the single brand and have multiple units, multiple locations within that brand? It just kind of, it's just kind of how it worked out, you know, uh, it wasn't necessarily something that, um, uh, you know, it, it just kind of fell into place is the best way to put it. So initially the first build out after the restaurant was our venue space and it was attached to peach tortilla catering where we come where we have a commissary kitchen. So it just felt natural to tie it to the brand. And then after that, I got offered to go into the airport and it was like, well, fast casual. I mean, it's kind of what we're doing in the trucks. Like let's just do the truck menu. So peach tortilla airport, and then um, Bar Peach just came naturally because we looked at the space. We thought it'd be great for that that type of concept. I had that concept in mind. And so, it, like I said, it just kind of felt organic. Um, and, you know, Peach had a, had a brand associated with it, so a following. So we just kind of wanted to piggyback off that. Yeah, let's go with brand. Uh, first off, it's funny. I'm bearing the lead in this way, but very practically so because I'm very interested now. We kind of wag the dog a little bit the brand yeah. itself the peach tortilla why the peach tortilla significance uh i mean i grew up in atlanta peach state and you know on the trucks we were thinking we we're going to serve primarily tacos be a taco yeah. driven spot so it was tr trying to pay homage to growing up in in georgia and you know the roots there i, I like it okay yeah. so then the brand for you, brand's really important. It's very, very clear. Your messaging is concise. There's like focus, yet you're able to hold space at the airport, at a bar, 
at a full service at the food truck. That's difficult to do, to stay on brand, on message with kind of very different concepts potentially in the way that you're delivering catering as well. So how are you able to do that? What are the touch points? What's, what's the interaction that your internal guests, your staff and your external guests are having with the brand that you think is significant, that you make sure is mantra within your company? Well, I think we have to hit on a few points. Like one is like the people obviously. And like, cause they're at the end of the day, they're interacting with, with our, our, our staff. And so, I mean, if you're, if you're not on brand with sort of like our personality and like our company culture, like you, you probably don't last too long. Um, and, and you kind of get weeded out, honestly. Um, people get tired of you. I mean, the, the people that work for right. us are a very specific type of, of person. And so, uh, you're either with the company culture or you're not. And so when you're interacting with the guests or the guests interacting with you, they, they probably sense that. The second is the food. The food, there, there is a thread, the common thread that runs through all our food. And so no matter if it's a little more upscale or a little more street food driven, that, that common thread is noticed by the customer. And then third is probably aesthetics. Like, you know, whether you go into Bar Peach, you go into Peach Tortilla, you go to the airport, you see hints of the same aesthetics. And so you feel like you're in a comfortable spot or something familiar is there. And so I think those three things all play a role. Yeah, it makes sense. From uh, from just a brand of messaging, from what I've seen, very clear. And it's just, you kind of have a swagger to you. And there's a little bit of a look and a feel to it. And I think that's pretty important. They don't all look the same. They all feel the same though. And I think yeah. there's a distinction worth mentioning is like they all feel the same are you very aware of that is that you is that coming from you when you interact with the space with the food with your team are you feeling that do you have systems in place that help you manage that give us a little kind of that practical from an operator standpoint yeah i mean i, I touch a lot of I, I touch a lot of the locations i mean on a daily basis I'm, I'm very involved in terms of like build outs like i picked this wallpaper in back of me you know like my, yeah. architect, my, my designer gave me like 10 choices and I picked it. So that's so funny uh, before we got live, Sophie was like, love the wallpaper. Yeah. So you're getting daps on the wallpaper for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very into like, you know, the, the ceiling in back of me is painted white, you know, that, before yeah. it was, uh, it was just the, the wood color. So that was a decision that I was involved in, you know? And so, uh, all those little details from design to food to, to uniforms to the color of your apron all that stuff um i like to to be involved in for sure last last minute here let's touch on some of the people you mentioned the people your team who are some of the individuals on your crew that you're just damn lucky to be working with any any people stand out that we want to highlight kind of the style of person their work sure. ethic their hustle their integrity their smarts that we can kind of uh siphon some superpowers from some of your people well we've got four people with us that have been with the company for a very long time that deserve highlighting um one the longest tenured employee i have is a guy named enrique who's who's pretty much my quality control manager for all my prep that comes out of my main location um, Enrique Cruz, you are the yeah. you are the backbone of this entire industry. Everybody knows Enrique Cruz. They've interacted with them. I love it. So he's been with me a long time. Um, and then you know Beto, uh, who's my operations manager. He's been with um, he's been with me for about eight years, and he he oversees both restaurant operations. Um, and so uh, between those two, that's combined eighteen years with the company. And then I mean, that is like dog years that, that 
You don't that hear that years. very often. In this industry, it, it's dog years. When I mean, the average restaurant tenure prior to COVID was 56 days. Like we chum through people. It's yeah. crazy. So a lot of respect. There's something happening there. You find good people, you keep good people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we got a couple others that I just want to give a shout out to, you know, Serafina, who's our operations manager over at um, our catering. She's been with me almost seven years. And then Kevin, who's our beverage director, has been with us for uh, about five and a half years. So we got a lot of guys that have been with the company for, um, you know, some over a decade. Um, and, you know, I'm truly grateful for that, especially them sticking with me during this pretty ridiculous time. Yeah. And for that, let's touch on that. There's pretty ridiculous time. You mentioned just the longevity that you have is unbelievable. It's kind of like one of those, if I didn't know anything else about you, I knew that you had fundamental people that have been there for that long. I would understand you as a leader. Like that's super, super important. You hold space for people to be able to thrive for that long in this crazy industry. It means a lot. What's happening today? Just give us a couple little nuggets of like uh, interactions, touch points, something that they are doing today that you're just like, this is how we're going to survive this COVID crisis as a company. Well, I, the, the biggest thing is that we're all doing whatever it takes to whatever survive. Takes. And so um, someone like a Serafina, who's our operations manager, is spending half her time in the kitchen. Or uh, someone like a Beto might be running Expo one day because we're short in the kitchen because we're having trouble retaining people, you know, or he might be spearheading. Um, like when we just pivoted straight to takeout only right at the get go, um, you know, he's spearheading that. So uh, right now it, you have to be very uh, light on your feet um, and you got to be able to shift within the day. I mean, this thing is changing every 24 hours, you know, in Austin, it's like, okay, you can't be open. Now you can be open 75% capacity, 50% capacity, outdoor dining. You know, it's like, holy crap, man. Like, you know, we've been six different businesses in three and a half months. So, uh, you know, everyone's just got to have the right attitude and bring the right attitude and see this thing for the long term. And that's a lot easier said than done. I mean, even I struggle with that. Yeah, day to day. But the fact that you struggle with it and then are surrounding yourself with good people and empowering them, that's that's leadership. So I really appreciate it. I'm so glad that Patrick connected us. Yeah. I knew this was gonna be a great conversation. I'm really excited for the work that you're doing. Thank I am you. I'm paying a lot of attention to the way that you've cleverly navigated building the peach brand up, yet doing it multifaceted. I think it's super smart. I'm gonna I'm going to look back because I think you'll be one of those guys that's super smart and understands one of the things that I've been talking about a lot is CPG. Brands need mm. to develop into consumer packaged goods. They need to be going direct to consumer. They need to figure out ways to get into retail. And uh, I am sure that like that, that is something that, yeah, I'm sure that that's something that you're going to be on top of as well. So I really appreciate the conversation, Eric. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. All right. You have a great day. Be good. Okay. All right. Thank you. Eric Silverstein, the peach tortilla. If you're in Austin, you know. If you're not, now you know. And uh, thanks again to Patrick Scott Armstrong. Check out his podcast, the Lone Star Plate podcast. Amazing stuff. Really focused on food systems, but then just the humans, the stories of humans in the great state of Texas has been really cool to watch. It's amazing to have him on the show. Look back and uh, check out the show with Patrick Scott Armstrong. 
And he said, Eric Silverstein is one of the people he's watching out for. And now I am as well. And we got to have a great conversation. Once again, most of our guests are good people connecting good people. So if there's somebody in your community that you work with, that you work for, that you have a business and you need to be on this show, all you got to do is recommend somebody be on the show. Patrick Scott Armstrong. Yes, sir. Appreciate that. All right. Sophie, what'd you think? Hi, it was so cool. Well, hello. Um, hello. I really loved hearing about um, the food trucks because we don't usually have when people are on and they have had a food truck, they don't always talk about like what it was like to start the food truck or what, you know, it's such a hard business. So he was talking about mopping the floors while they're driving and you don't ever think about that as a consumer. And so um, and then they were really smart and practical. They bought another food truck and then they did the catering and then they it was all very uh, thought out and methodical, which was really cool to see. So smart because, you know, a lot of times food trucks or kind of those early beginnings are like these clumsy, awkward adolescent times. And so we kind of go, no, yeah, we did this thing and it was whatever. And then now we're doing the thing that we're supposed to do. The fact that it was very thoughtful and then and then it kind of built the bedrock for what ended up being and is their business, I think is super great. Yeah, that's a good one. Anything else? Um, I, I mean, I'm going to say it again. I liked his wallpaper and I didn't realize that we have a private chat and I, I put that in there and I didn't realize you could see that. And then he was talking about how he chose the wallpaper and I was like, you have good style, good Perfect. design. You crushed Yes, I think it's very interesting. Mentioned the $250 a square foot is kind of the build out average that you go about. I love that we talked about sound. There's like multiple things just from a smart operator standpoint. And then he just kind of like threw it in there, said, and with, you know, with COVID, I think it's going to go down, right? The right. per square footage is going to go down. What I think is interesting about that is there's simple little things that you can do, like the wallpaper or painting the ceiling that don't necessarily break the bank because too often restaurants are so undercapitalized and over leveraged and spend way too much money on the uh, poor light fixtures. They're just like my, my, my whooping boy right now, but that's what they are is like you spend, you know, $172 per light fixture and then the light is crap. I don't care oh. that they were, you know, on the Titanic. It doesn't matter. Right. But simple, wallpaper could have the emotional response that you need versus having this super clever, sexy thing that doesn't actually have any functionality. So yeah, I really appreciate that. All right. Great episode. feel like we're really hitting stride right now. It's feeling really good, especially some of these where we're navigating, weaving between the personal stories and then trying to give people very practical business advice, right? This channel best served fast so if you got to help me, I got to tell people at the beginning of the show that this channel is best served fast, best served fast, fast, casual, multi-unit growth concept, fast food, ghost kitchens, right? We're going to be focusing on that in these channels to give anybody who's looking to go from one location to multiple, who's looking to go from food truck to brick and mortar, who's looking to get fast growth whatever that is, QSR, any of those things are fair game. So if you have, again, people that need to be on the show that are playing in that space, please, please, please connect us. Thank you so much. Great show today. Appreciate you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.